0: Hello and welcome back to The Pisky Trap, a series where we explore the folklore, history and legends from across Devon and Cornwall. First off, I'd just like to say a big thank you to everyone who's been listening so far. To everyone who's left their wonderful comments and their feedback, I really appreciate that, so thank you for your support. The ghost stories in particular seem to have really struck a chord with people. And all I can say is that there are definitely going to be more we'll be looking at more haunted locations and other spooky stories, so there's more to come in the future. In the meantime, if ghost stories blended with history are your thing, then I highly recommend checking out Haunted History Chronicles, which explores a range of ghost stories, haunted locations, as well as the darker, often forgotten aspects of our history and our past. And you can find that on Apple, Spotify and most major platforms so I highly recommend checking that out. But for now, back to the episode. Cornwall has a long history of mining, particularly for tin and copper. In this episode, we're going to be delving into the lives of the tinners or miners over the centuries and some of their beliefs and superstitions. I can remember when I was about eight or nine years old, I had a teacher at primary school who knew quite a lot about myths and legends and folklore, and she was certainly one of the first people who inspired my passion for this sort of subject. I'm pretty sure it was from her that I first learned of what she referred to as the knockers or knackers. I recall her explaining to us that these were creatures, I suppose a little bit like dwarves or gnomes, that lived and worked in the mines. To me that was fascinating, There's already something in the idea of going down to work underground in a mineshaft that conjures up images of that environment, dark and dank, and what it must have been like. But add into that mix the idea that there might be these mythical creatures lurking in the darkness that can either bring you good luck, or perhaps bring about misfortune, that adds a whole other layer to it. This is going to be a bit of an exploration, not just into the idea of these knockers, but also into the realities of working in a Cornish mine over the centuries, and why there might have been these beliefs and these superstitions. We're also going to be looking at one particular mine located near St Agnes, which has a story to tell. It's actually a ghost story, but it blends together many of these beliefs that there are spirits and otherworldly forces at work in the mines. It's this story which became so well known that a mine shaft was actually named after it, and it even became a common term used amongst the mining community at the time, which is the inspiration for this episode. To explore some of these stories a bit further, and to tap into mining history, beliefs and superstitions, I've enlisted the help of local historian Roger Radcliffe, who was kind enough to chat to me about the subject a few weeks back. And you're going to hear extracts from that conversation a little bit later. But for now, allow me to introduce our next episode, Chasing Dorcas. Their work is most by candlelight. In these passages they meet sometimes with very loose earth, sometimes with exceeding hard rocks, and sometimes with great streams of water. The loose earth is propped by frames of timber work as they go, and yet now and then falling down either presseth the poor workmen to death or stoppeth them from returning. That was a quote from Richard Carew's survey of Cornwall, and it gives us this insight into the working practices of miners, as well as the environment and the conditions that they're working in. Carew was writing back in 1602, so well over 400 years ago. But the history of mining in Cornwall seems to go back quite a long way into the distant past. Historians and archaeologists seem to think it goes back as far as the Bronze Age, At least 1800 BC, perhaps much earlier than that. To make bronze you need copper and tin, both of which were mined in Cornwall, initially from outcrops on the surface which can be streamed. By the time the Romans were in Britain, Cornish tin was a highly prized commodity. In talking of the mines, Carew himself mentions that these workings are very ancient and was said to have been first wrought with pickaxes of holm, box, and hartshorn, essentially crafted from materials such as deer antlers and that kind of thing. He goes on to theorize that early peoples must have used what they had to hand in terms of what he calls poor instruments. He then says, and I quote: "There are also taken up in such works certain little tool heads of brass, which some term thunder axes." But they make small show of any profitable use. Neither were the Romans ignorant of this trade, as may appear by a brass coin of Domitians found in one of these works and fallen into my hands, quote. And from well after Carew's time, the Cornish mining industry continued to grow. According to the Cornwall Heritage Trust, and I quote, By 1740, deep mining of copper was underway, made possible by the invention of increasingly sophisticated pumping equipment to remove some of the water from underground. The effect of copper mining on Cornwall was huge. Demand for the metal was high, prices were good, and copper reserves were large. There was little competition from elsewhere in the country. At its peak, the copper mining industry employed up to 30% of Cornwall's male workforce and came to involve not just mining and refining of ore, but also smelting, end quote. Though it seems that by around the mid-19th century, a lot of these deposits had been exhausted, and with people starting to find large deposits in other parts of the world, the price of copper fell. They go on to say, However, tin ore had been found in some of the deeper Cornish mines, To access the tin loads, miners had to go to deeper levels. Now to me, and I touched on this at the outset, this idea that as a miner you're going to work involves this journey underground into dark and potentially dangerous environments, and into increasingly deeper shafts well below the surface, it starts to tap into something I was talking about in the episode on Cornish mermaids. That idea of the open water and the deep sea. The fear of what's beneath the waves. The fear of the unknown, basically. A few weeks back, I had a chat with Roger Radcliffe, who's a local historian, chairman of the St Agnes Museums Trust, and also leads walks and tours exploring Cornish heritage. I asked Roger about working conditions in a mine, They're clearly a dangerous environment. But it strikes me that working in a mine today, even with all our modern safety equipment and advanced technology, can still be equally unsafe. I also asked whether the very nature of a mine itself might give rise to stories and superstitions.
1: I think the answer is certainly yes. I mean, these are dark places, you're going into a dark place underground, there's stuff you can't see, there are things that will prey on the imagination, and I think it's fair to say that the very environment of a miner is something, is is, is a place that is going to propagate all kinds of thoughts, and, you know, we know from historical writings that uh, some of this superstition, Uh, really does go back a long way you know we're we're sort of certainly way back I guess from the start of underground mining and the date of that is a little bit uncertain depending on you know which um, which sort of historical philosophy you subscribe to but undoubtedly people were burrowing under the ground from really ancient times so I guess some of this stuff is quite deep-rooted by the very nature of the game you know the nature of mining
0: do you think there's often people dwell on the fact that it was always dirty, it was noisy, it was, but actually you've still got those same safety issues now, even with all our modern equipment and things, when people yep. are working.
1: Yeah, definitely. Modern mining techniques. I remember visiting a miner from South Crofty, uh, a St Agnes man, who, um, using modern methods, had near killed himself underground and uh, he was very lucky to survive and you know I mean accidents in the workplace happen you don't have to be a medieval miner for it to apply to you only Uh, again another example of a friend of mine who used to work at um, Wheel Jane you know you know some massive lumps of rock will be moving and you know they'll be walking to work one day he was he was uh, talking to his friends and he said to them hark listen, can you hear the ground talking? And they said, no, no, you're imagining it. No, no, it is, it's talking. And that was their way of saying that there was something moving, there was a noise. Well, they carried on to, the, to where they were working at the, on that particular level. But when they came back, a piece of rock about the size of a car had fallen out of the roof of their level and had blocked their way. So he was right, he'd heard this, he was tuned in to those little creaks and groans uh, of the ground talking. And, uh, you know, that is horrendous to think of it, you know, a piece of of rock the size of a car having slid out of the geology into their working. So of course it's dangerous.
0: So keeping that in mind, surely even today, Even if you are not particularly superstitious, if you were to take that journey underground into a mine, there's a good chance that's going to make you feel a certain way. We've established that mining in Cornwall goes back a long way, and alongside that history of mining, there seems to have been a broad range of beliefs, rituals and superstitions that develop, which I suppose makes sense if you're going underground and into the unknown. Margaret Anne Courtney, in her book of 1890, entitled Cornish Feasts and Folklore, begins one of her chapters with the following, and I quote, Although Cornish miners, or tinners as they are generally called, are very intelligent, and since the days of Wesley, a religious body of men, many of their old world beliefs still linger. To this day it is considered unlucky to make the form of a cross on the sides of a mine, and when underground you may on no account whistle for fear of vexing the knockers and bringing ill luck, but you may sing or even swear without producing any bad effect. End quote. So here we have mention of these creatures known as the knockers that inhabit the mines and are clearly still playing a part in the everyday lives of miners as late as the 1890s. In the same way that other, I guess, fairy folk, such as Piskies or Spriggans, are feared and respected, these knockers were said to only inhabit areas where there was a productive load. So they might bring you good fortune. But at the same time, you get the sense that they're a creature not to be trifled with, I find it interesting trying to track the origins of these beliefs and these superstitions and just how widespread they were. Ronald M. James has written an article entitled Knockers, Knackers and Ghosts, Immigrant Folklore in the Western Mines and it basically deals with a continuation of Cornish folklore amongst the Cornish miners who had emigrated to the US, a majority of them in the 19th century, where the belief in these creatures persisted. He begins by speculating on the origins of these kinds of beliefs. Apologies in advance for any mispronunciations here. And I quote, Perhaps wherever miners went underground during pre-industrial times, they populated the eerie environment with supernatural beings. The creatures usually took the form of diminutive old men who played pranks and either warned miners of danger and led them to treasure, or punished transgressions. Among the Germans, they were the Kobolder, or the Wichtlein, the Imp. Among the Welsh, the now In Bohemia, Haus Schmiedlein, which means House Blacksmith. In Malaysia, Chongfu. And in the Andes, Mukwi. For the English, the mine's spirits were goblins or dwarves, And the Cornish, in the US that is, called them Tommyknockers. Occasionally they shortened it to Knockers or Knackers, or replaced it with names such as Bucker, Boggle, Spriggan, or the Pick and Gad Men. So it seems that the belief in these kinds of creatures was pretty universal, wherever you had people working underground. And in Cornwall, the belief, or at least the superstitions and stories relating to the Knockers or the Knackers, seems to have continued up until relatively recently. Writers such as Robert Hunt and William Bottrell talk about them, and later Tony Dean and Tony Shaw mention them in their Folklore of Cornwall, published in 1975, although they're mainly drawing on that earlier work of Hunt and Bottrell. Ronald M. James himself mentions conducting his own research in Cornwall back in 1982, but by the time he was inquiring about the knockers, most people basically laughed and regarded them as a bit of a quaint and an old-fashioned superstition. But less than a century earlier, that definitely wasn't the case. Robert Hunt, who I've mentioned before back in the pilot episode for this series, wrote his popular romances of the west of England back in the late 19th century. In that, he claims that since John Wesley had come to Cornwall back in the 18th century, leading to the establishment of more schools and wider education, many of the old superstitions had started to fade away, but the knockers were still talked about. And he gives an example of a house where the family were disturbed by noises at night, which seemed to come from beneath the house, and this was attributed to the knockers, Apparently, there was a load of tin which ran beneath the house and to quote hunt wherever there is a load of tin, you are sure to hear strange noises. This idea, this little story, and the belief that these knockers or knackers dwelled underground, and that sometimes you could even hear them from your house if you lived above a mine shaft, that fascinated me, and It's something that came up in conversation with Roger.
1: Well, I did have a a couple come and see me uh, only a few years ago who had that same problem. They lived in a bungalow that had been built on uh, some former mining land. There was a known shaft, you know, not 50 yards from where they lived. And the lady in particular would, would hear quite regularly tapping and knocking and swearing and um you know she just couldn't explain it and it quite spooked her and it was the same kind of thing that you you hear from you know old accounts of knockers you know well I I thought about it I mean I what can you say when somebody comes in all seriousness to tell you about this and their concerns about it and you know what do, do what do I think it is? Well, uh, you know I couldn't just say well it's the knockers. You know I mean, it. Um, I thought about it afterwards, and I I know that there are some underground explorers who are whenever they can they try and extend the known limits of exploration within some of the old mine workings, and where there have been collapses or Uh, where where there are opportunities to sort of get into a new working. Sometimes they have to do essentially what amounts to a bit of mining or a bit of repair work in order to get themselves through to a new area which hasn't been explored in recent times. And all I could think was that perhaps she had heard some of these uh, explorers, you know, working on a a new section of, of the mine, and, you know, they come into to this part that was very close to her house. It's either that or it is the knockers, you know, I mean, in which case I don't know what to say. <laughs>
0: <laughs> a lot of the phenomena attributed to the knockers seems to consist of literal knocks and sounds within the minds. But there's also this idea of hearing your name called. Sometimes, as a helpful warning to keep you from dangers such as a rockfall or a cave-in, or to guide you to a productive load, or perhaps even to taunt and toy with those who were deemed to have done wrong. This idea of a voice calling out to you or having your name called was again something that came up in conversation, and in this instance, Roger had his own story to tell in relation to Giva Mine, which is over in West Cornwall near Pendine.
1: I mean, I don't know to what extent it exists in current mining practice, but certainly a friend of mine who used to work at Gieber Mine um, in the 1960s, kind of, stroke 70s, he uh, was given the task of um, uh, of driving the little um, engine that, that for the tram wagons underground, and his job, when they were um, working in a stope, they had a line of wagons and his job was to move the wagons on, uh, you know, one wagon at a time so that they could be filled from the chute, the ore chute that was above the, the location in the stoke. And, uh, you know, so he would receive a, a command to move forward and he would take the, the row of tram wagons forward one so that they could fill the next one and so on until the whole uh, train of wagons was full and then they would go off to, to be deposited. So um, he was doing this and uh, he heard the, a call and he moved forward and there was all hell let loose, commotion, what the hell are you doing? You know. And of course, he said, well, you told me to go forwards. He said, no, he didn't. Yes, you did, I heard it plainly. Well, at that point, the proceedings stopped and they went back up the shaft to grass you know as they might say in the old days and um without question when the three men were asked um you know why they were back so soon uh, one of the old stages said boy he had his name called and there was no question about it they just were allowed to carry on and they finished work there and then it was like an omen that something bad was about to happen And that was a level of suspicion that suspended operations in that level um, on that particular day. And that's deep rooted. I mean, that is like they believe it, you know what I mean? I suppose, as you say, you don't want to mess around in these environments, you know, because you could kill yourself straightforwardly. So I think that's quite a surprising carryover from long ago, you know.
0: What I really love about this little story and what fascinates me is the sense that these traditions were so ingrained that when you claim to have had your name called, it's stated as a simple matter of fact, a legitimate reason to go to grass or go back above ground. And this isn't that long ago, this is back in the 60s or the 70s, so it makes me wonder how many of these traditions and superstitions might continue even to the present day in some form or other in parts of the world where people are still mining. There have been various theories on who the knockers were supposed to be, and their origins. They're often depicted as creatures very similar or related to, piskies or elves, but they could also be viewed as spirits that dwelled in the mines as well. Hunt and Bottrell both talk about this old superstition, that the knockers were the spirits of workers belonging to a medieval Jewish community, had once worked the mines centuries earlier, though there seems to be no historical evidence for this whatsoever. Some historians have theorised that there may have been this belief they were the ghosts of the ancient Bronze Age miners still going about their work, or acting as spectral guardians, if you like. Ronald M. James highlights the fact that these traditions exist in various forms all over Europe, and there's often, in his words, a muddling of the distinction between ghosts particularly of the long dead, and elves. In the same way that many fairy folk across different cultures are often revered, there's this idea of the knockers causing bad luck to those who are greedy, who misbehave, or show a disrespect. So there's lots of minor superstitions that involve leaving an offering to the knockers, perhaps leaving what's called a diggin, a small morsel of food, basically, from, say, your pasty or your heavy cake, for the knockers to appease them or to give you good luck or good fortune.
1: In my family, keeping the end of your pasty and you know, as a little a little sort of token, um, that is something that somehow I have got in my own understanding of pasties, and the, that it comes from miners who would keep the end of their pasty and just chuck it to one side as a little tail end, uh to appease the knockers underground, you know. So that I have heard and I, I guess that, um, I mean I don't know whether that's a superstition that persists underground, but certainly putting offerings just out generally. There was an old lady that, as we approached New Year's Eve, she um, regularly, uh, at that time, she would give me a little paper bag in which would be um, Uh, a coin you know perhaps you know 2p or something or I can't remember it didn't go back to pre-decimalization but anyway a coin a little piece of coal and a piece of bread and that was a little good luck uh, charm that you were to place on your doorstep as we go from one year into the next and she used to do that and I did I used to put the little bag outside on the doorstep overnight as we crossed from one year to the next And it was a little good luck charm to ensure that you had food and warmth and money.
0: So a great little insight there into some of the traditions and what you might call charms and superstitions, which seem to have been passed down through the generations as well. But what might happen if you chose not to stick with tradition and you refused to leave an offering in the mines? William Bottrell records the legend of a man named Tom Trevorrow, who was a miner from St. Just, who refused to give any of his food, in this case phuggan, which is heavy cake, as an offering to the knockers. When he decides he's not going to follow the tradition and give an offering, the knockers call out a rhyme to him from within the mine. Tom Trevorrow, Tom Trevorrow, leave some of thy phuggan for bucca, or bad luck to thee tomorrow. But Tom still refuses, and so they recite the following. Tommy Trevorrow, Tommy Trevorrow, will send thee bad luck tomorrow. Thou old curmudgeon, to eat all thy fuggin' and not leave a diggin' for bucker. After that, it seems the knockers ruined all of Tom's luck in the mines, and eventually he had to turn his hand to farming instead. In the same way that many Cornish tales about Piskies tell us that they don't like to be spied on, In fact, they seem to take great joy in being elusive and don't like people seeing them or discovering their secrets. The same can be said of the knockers, too. Another story related by Robert Hunt tells of a man named Barker who found a fairy well where he could look down and observe the knockers. He watched them, he assumed, in secret as they worked and engaged in conversation. One day... As the knockers were quitting work for the day, they explained where they were going to place their tools, and the last among them said, I'll place mine on Barker's knee. The man suddenly felt a terrible pain in his leg and was subsequently lamed for life. He was being punished for his curiosity. Apparently, folk who suffered with rheumatism were said to be stiff as Barker's knee, and the fact that Dean and Shaw were able to source that expression even as late as the 1970s, suggests that at one point it was a phrase that was widespread. In the story of Barker, you get the sense that these knockers are very similar to piskies or elves and gnomes. They're very mischievous and clever, but they're basically little miners. I now want to come back to this other perception of creatures within the mines by looking at how these beliefs blend in with general superstitions surrounding spirits and the paranormal, by looking at a local ghost story. The following extract comes from Robert Hunt, And the story centres around a ghost that was said to haunt a mine in St. Agnes. Polbreen Mine is situated at the foot of the hill known as St. Agnes Beacon. In one of the small cottages which immediately joins the mine, once lived a woman called Dorcas. Beyond this, we know little of her life, but we are concerned chiefly with her death, which, we are told, was suicidal. From some cause which is not related, Dorcas grew weary of life. And one unholy night, she left her house and flung herself into one of the deep shafts of Breen Mine, at the bottom of which her dead and broken body was discovered. The remnant of humanity was brought to the surface, and after the laws of the time with regard to suicides had been fulfilled, the body of Dorcas was buried. Her presence, however still remained in the mine. She appears, ordinarily, to take a malicious delight in tormenting the industrious miner, calling him by name and alluring him from his tasks. This was carried on by her to such an extent that when a tributer had made a poor month, he was asked if he had been chasing Dorcas. Hunt then goes on to explain the term tributer. A tributer is someone who agrees with the adventurers in a mine to receive a certain share of the profits on the ore raised by him in lieu of wages. That account is usually then settled monthly or bimonthly, hence we get the phrase, a poor month. So, by all accounts, Dorcas was usually only a voice. Some miners would occasionally claim to see her in the mine but most people seem to have been quite sceptical about that and blamed it on the general fear of their comrades. However, Hunt goes on to say, and I quote, It is stated as an incontrovertible fact that more than one man who has met the spirit in the levels of the mine has had his clothes torn off his back, whether in anger or in sport, is not clearly made out. End quote. At this point, I wanted to get Roger's thoughts on the story of Dorcas as someone who knows quite a bit about the history of St. Agnes.
1: There is a shaft marked on the Ordnance Survey, uh, probably the earlier editions, as Dorcas's shaft, which is um, some relatively short distance behind the railway inn at St. Agnes. So you can physically locate where uh, this accident was supposed to have happened and Dorcas we are told was a troubled soul and she reputedly committed suicide down this shaft and although her body was recovered uh, it was said that her spirit inhabited the workings of the mine and so when these two particular miners were working at an end um, uh, quite steadily uh, one of them would stop every now and again to listen because he thought he heard his name called and in you know the tradition of these stories he heard it 3 times on the third occasion he was so sure that he'd heard his name called that he stepped away from his work and no sooner had he done so than the roof of that level collapsed and uh, you know a great slab of rock came down and it would have certainly killed him So, uh, you know, after he'd managed to extricate himself with the help of his friend, um, they went up, um, you know, swearing that Dorcas had actually saved this man's life. Uh, Because up until then, she'd been um, something of a mischief maker, it would seem. And it's reputed that, you know, it would become quite physical. One man having his shirt torn off his back, for example, by the spirit of Dorcas. So, um, you know, that, that is an old 19th century, well, I don't know how old, it may even be earlier than that, but certainly it's a tale that's uh, recorded by Robert Hunt in his Popular Romances of the West of England, which was quite a famous book of uh, folk tales and legends relating to Cornwall. And, um, and the interesting thing from my point of view is that Robert Hunt during a time of um, convalescence after an illness used to spend quite a lot of time in St Agnes and he in fact when he published his popular romances in the preface it is actually signed um, by Robert Hunt of Goonlay's house St Agnes so he he was actually using that address and we know that he was obviously writing there at some point and so it has a sort of double significance And reputedly, the spirit of Dorcas not only inhabited that mine, but was said to inhabit other mines as well in the locality. So miners uh, apparently had similar tales of mischief being done to them in some of the other mines adjoining Polbreen.
0: Something I find particularly fascinating about this. If Hunt had been staying at the time in the area around St Agnes, to me, it seems highly likely he was hearing the stories about Dorcas directly from the locals, who might either have worked in the local mines themselves, or knew people who had, or at least had been past these local stories and traditions surrounding Paul Breen. Another thing that stands out for me in the story of Dorcas is how her spirit goes from being a mischievous, even a malignant entity to saving this one particular miner from a potential rockfall? Was it perhaps this final act, this one good deed, that finally allowed her soul to rest? Who knows? But Robert Hunt finishes by saying Although Dorcas's shaft remains a part of Polbreen Mine, I am informed by the present agent that her presence has departed. Hopefully you can see why I chose to incorporate the story of Dorcas into this episode. A lot of the key elements to her story seem to blend in with the belief in the knockers and similar creatures or spirits in the mines. The fact that she's heard rather than seen. And again, this idea of having your name called. So many of these tales tend to focus on the sounds in a mine. The auditory phenomena, if you will knocks and taps, mysterious voices, there's certainly something in the very nature and the environment, working in those conditions, that must play a part in these stories. Thinking back to my conversation with Roger and his friend in Wheel Jane, saying that the earth was literally talking to him, this idea of a miner's intuition, if you will. After so many years working in that environment, it it makes complete sense that you'd be constantly listening out for any sounds, any shifts and movements. I think it's easy to look back at certain traditions and superstitions and see them as very quaint or old-fashioned, perhaps. The idea of knockers, a mere myth from a distant past. But the fact is, lots of superstitions linger with us. Take something every day, the idea of counting or saluting magpies, for example, I can quite easily see how the legends of the Knockers and Dorcas could fit into people's lives in that way. Think about it. You're on your way to work in a place where any number of accidents could happen, in the dark, and maybe far underground. Adhering to some of these little traditions, leaving that extra little bit of pasty, it's probably worth it just to be on the safe side. The legends of the knockers continue to fascinate me because, like so many of these wonderful tales, they're a link to our past, our heritage. They bring us closer to understanding the world and how it was perceived by people, in some cases, many centuries ago, or even less than a century ago. And to me it's important that we keep their storytelling traditions alive. And anyway, who's to say? Maybe somewhere, even now deep underground, in one of the long-abandoned mine shafts, The knockers might still be at work. Thanks for listening. I'd like to thank Roger Radcliffe for all his help with this episode. And if you like, you can check out some of the research sources by taking a look at the reading list for this series, which is in the show notes for each episode. Thanks again to all of you who've been in touch. If you have ideas for local stories from your area of Devon or Cornwall, whether it's myths and legends, haunted locations, or little gems of forgotten local history that you'd like me to explore in the series, then please feel free to drop me an email at thepiskytrap at gmail.com. Or you can find The Pisky Trap on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. If you're enjoying the series and would like to see more episodes, then please give us a like and share if you can. Ultimately, it's you guys as listeners that make this series possible. So if you'd like to support the project further and help me to keep researching and bringing you new episodes and more content, you can check out my Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash the Pisky Trap. The Pisky Trap is presented by me, Keith Wallace, with music by Elizabeth Westcott and artwork by Caris Harrington. We'll be back again very soon to talk about Cornish Piskies.